Hey everybody, welcome back to Partial Lab. This is Rabbi David Foreman. I'm here this week with one of our fabulous writers, Daniel Lowenstein. Daniel. Hi Rabbi Foreman, how are you? Good to have you aboard and really look forward to having you here today um, for, for one more of these, Daniel. Before we begin, uh, I just want to remind all of you folks out there in Aleph Beta listener land to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You can do that with your favorite podcasting app, Stitcher or SoundCloud or uh, iTunes or whatever it is that you use. Not that hard to do. It's just the press of a button. So what are you waiting for? Go do it. Plus, if you really like us, you can rate us. There's all these nifty little stars. You can pick out five of them and give them to us, and that would be really delightful. You can tell your friends, and if you don't want to just go shout at the rooftops, you can actually do that electronically by sharing this podcast with your fellow potential listeners to it. Anyway, without no further ado, Daniel, why don't you kick this off? Thank you so much. So the Parsha we're going to be discussing today is Parshat Pinchas. And one of the stories in Parshat Pinchas is the story of Benot Slavchad, the five daughters of this man Slavchad who died in the desert. And his daughters were worried about being um, sort of disenfranchised, not being able to inherit land. Because at that point in the Torah, it's implied that the laws are that only male children can inherit land. And therefore, since Slavchad did not have any male heirs, the land would go to some sort of distant relative. So in other words, just so we understand, the issue of Benot Slavchad actually wasn't just uh, that these young women felt that they weren't going to get any inheritance, because that's really no different from any woman at the time. Their particular position is that they are the sole children of their father, right? So their father doesn't have a male heir. That means essentially that their entire household is sort of disappearing from the map, at least in terms of inheritance of the land of Israel. And that's really the claim that they're going to press. Exactly. Now, they take this claim to Moshe and they ask him to do something about it. And let me ask you a question. Based on the track record of the children of Israel so far in the desert, when they press claims or when they uh, make requests, how does God usually respond? It feels like a trick question. Specifically, specifically in the, in the uh, book of Numbers. Well, the book of Numbers, typically most claims come across as somehow illegitimate and denied, although some are accepted. I mean, the, the claim of Korach, of course, is rejected, but the claim of the people to send spies is accepted. It may be a disaster, but uh, it feels like there there may have been a request for spies, depending on, on on how you see the various biblical texts driving with each other, and that was accepted. But certainly, you don't have a great record of people making uh, legitimate claims and being listened to. Right. There's a lot in the book of Numbers about people making requests that, as you said, seem to be uh, illegitimate. And God very often gets angry. There are lots of punishments, uh, fires and uh, plagues and what have you. And uh, how about here in the story of uh, the daughters of Slavchad? How does God respond? So this seems to be one of the bright exceptions, right? It's, this is a case where God actually uh, almost joyfully accepts their request. Moses comes and, and puts this request to God, and God comes back with, Cain benot slavchad davrot. The daughters of slavchad are speaking correctly. Uh, you shall surely give to them what it is that they're asking for. So a ringing affirmation of the claim. Right. And fascinatingly, not only is this uh, a localized acceptance, but actually their claim is then codified into law. Yep. They become the basis for 
this uh, halachic principle, which gets ensconced forevermore for the last 3,000 years, that land can pass to uh, a female daughter. Uh, sons get precedence, but there is no such thing as getting disinherited if you have female daughters. Now, I think this is a, a little bit of an extreme case, the ringing endorsement that God gives to this request. Now, I think there's actually one other time in the book of Numbers where we have sort of a similar ringing endorsement from God, where a request even actually ends up getting codified into law. Any idea what it is? Oh, Daniel, you're playing our favorite game with us again. Where have we heard these words before? I do. And I think it's not just uh, the generalities, but it's the particularities of the language, too. It really, really seems like a, a, a double story or two stories that are supposed to overlay on each other. The other example of this is the story of Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. Daniel, why don't you tell our listeners about it? Sure. Okay. So back in uh, Numbers chapter 9, we have a story about the bringing of the Korban Pesach, Passover offering, and how there was a small group of people who were ritually impure and were thus unable to bring that offering. And they went to Moshe and just like Benot Slavchad, they said, hey, you know, we're going to be left out of this. We don't want to be left out. Can you help us work something out? And by the way, Daniel, the, the real corner piece here, and, and I use corner piece uh, colloquially for uh, those who have been around the block with me. Sometimes I'll, I'll use these jigsaw puzzle analogies for connecting these two pieces of text. And a corner piece in a puzzle is the piece that you know where it belongs, even without reference to other pieces. It's just, you know where it goes. It's a corner piece. And here too, even if you weren't aware that in general, these things were connected, there's a particular word, which is so striking. There's the Lama Yigara or the Lama Nigara question, right? This is really what both of these claimants uh, ask for. In the words of the daughters of Tzlavchad, Lama Yigara, Shem Avinu Mitoch Mishpachto. Why should the name of our father be lessened, uh, sort of be depleted? It's a very unusual Hebrew language. Right, and you find the exact same term in the uh, in the story in Numbers 9, where the people who are impure say, Adam. We are impure, we've touched a dead body. Lama Nigara Livilti Hakriva Korban Hashem. Why should we be lessened or left out and be unable to bring this offering to God? Exactly. In both cases, that's the opening gambit of the claimant, of those making this request. So you've got the Lama Nigara language. You've, why, should we, why should we lose out? Right. And you also have the fact that God accepts their request and then even codifies well, the, it as And law. also the, the sense that the law is somehow unclear before this, right? That there's an ambiguity in the, in, in the law in both cases. Um, it requires human beings to step forward and clarify things through case law. Case law presented, as it were, to God himself. In both cases, the the request is presented to God. And in both cases, God is affirmative, right? We talked about that great affirmation in the case of Benot Slavchad. In the case of the Pesach Sheni, again, you've got this new law that's promulgated for generations. Ish, ish, If a person finds himself impure, unable to offer the Pesach offering when they're supposed to have, uh, which is in the month of Nisan, then 30 days later in the second month, they're able to offer that offering basically exactly uh, a month later, and they do it according to the same laws. So uh, the setup and the structure of both of these stories is the same, and the language in important ways is the same. Right. So if we have these linguistic similarities and these structural similarities, so the Torah seems to be suggesting that there's an important theme or, or commonality between these two stories. 
And yet, at face value, these stories couldn't be more different. What would the story of Pesach Sheni, this uh, seemingly abstruse law regarding offerings, have to do with the laws of inheriting the land? But, Daniel, one thing comes to mind, and I'll just throw it off your direction, which is that before the people come into the land in the book of Joshua to inherit their land collectively, what do they all stop and do? First, First thing they do is they do Mila, right, circumcision. But then immediately after that, dot, 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 drum roll, please. They all offer... The Korban Pesach. Yep, they offer the Korban Pesach, and it's the first time they're actually in the land. They're eating from the produce of the land. They're offering the Korban Pesach, and they're about to conquer Jericho. They're on the outskirts of Jericho, which is going to be the beginning, so to speak, of the collective inheritance of the land. So there seems to be something about inheriting the land and offering Korban Pesach that seems to be fundamentally you know, connected to one another. So these two stories are starting to converge a little bit. So it sounds like you have an idea about why these two things would be connected. Well, I'm just kind of thinking out loud. That's the beginning of an idea. Um, I have a little bit more of an idea and and happy to mention it. But Daniel, uh, you want me to go first or you go first? No, you, you go first. Absolutely, you go first. I mean, the only thing I would say is that perhaps we're talking about sort of two entrance tickets into nationhood over here in some kind of way. I don't have the idea fully fleshed out, but back in the day when we did our first year Parsha, there was a wonderful series on the laws of Tzara'at. Tzara'at is always one of these things, leprosy, that seems so far removed from our understanding. And yet, if you look carefully at the language, the language also echoes the language of Pesach and of Korban Pesach. And I basically developed some theories there, and you, you go back to those videos and watch them along with their epilogues. They're our first year Parsha at alatheta.org. Um, so uh, feel free to, to go take a look, all you listeners or watchers out there. But the, the theory, if I recall, that emerged from there is that the Pesach offering seems to be a very unusual thing. It seems to have an unusual function within the rubric of halacha. It seems to be literally an entrance ticket into nationhood. And the argument I think I made there was that we all sort of have two parts to our persona. One of those parts is we feel more... Uh, viscerally, uh, maybe in this world, and that is our individual selves, right? America is great for its celebration of, of rugged individualism. and uh, mm-hmm. But individualism taken too far can, can lead to, you know, the triumph of the ego. And the ego, when it triumphs, doesn't make us feel good if all we are as individuals. It makes us feel lonely. It makes us feel cut off. And we can celebrate our triumphs, the triumph of rugged individualism. But what do we have at the end of the day when we're cut off and painfully alone? Right, Foreman, that reminds me of, uh, there was a book that came out, I believe it was called Habits of the Heart, which was a study of the development of individualism in different forms in America. And one of the interviewees they had was this woman named Sheila, who was explaining how she um, viewed her religion. It was sort of a very personal, very individualistic kind of experience where you know she took the things that were meaningful to her and left out the things that were not meaningful to her. And she sort of decided to call it Sheilaism. I remember I once heard someone speaking and saying that, thank God her name wasn't Judy. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. So yeah, when all you are as an individual, off by your lonesome self, you can do things that seem very meaningful, but yet they're very, very lonely. 
I can speak to you this personally. You know, I'm here in the office crazily enough on the day that my daughter, thank God, is going to be getting married in the afternoon. Mazal tov about that, by the way. <laughs> thank you very much. And it's a it's a thrilling, really overwhelming event. I mean, walking down the aisle, it's going to feel like a complete out of body experience. And it's funny because you know you go to these weddings, and uh, you know I'm not such a wedding goer. I, but when it's your own kid, it feels like the most meaningful thing in the world. And you realize that it actually makes a difference when people show up. And you think, well, what's it make a difference when people show up? I'm happy my daughter's getting married. But there's something about communal celebration. There's something about not doing this alone, about doing this with others and having others there that is just a, a very important part of the joy and the experience. And you couldn't imagine just doing this alone. You want your friends around you. So, Rayford, how does this link back up to uh, inheritance and the Korban Pesach? So, Daniel, I'm glad you brought that up. What I'm driving at here is that there's another part of our personas, which is our communal selves, which is to say, and this is a very subtle point, but it's not just that there's this thing called community and I'm a part of it. It's different. It's that there's these two parts of me, right? There's me as an individual, and then there's another version of me, a sort of a communal me, a part of me as community without ego boundaries, just part of a nation. And in this world, we somehow balance those two and put our ego lives together with our communal lives and somehow have to walk that tightrope. But it's like there's these two parts of yourself. And my argument was then the laws of Mitzorah, one of those parts of you die. The communal self dies, so to speak, while the individual self continues to live. And the challenge of Sarat is to resuscitate the communal self. And you do it through a reenactment of Karban Pesach. Karban Pesach seems to be that entrance ticket into our communal selves. So maybe inheritance is something like that. In other words, these girls, right, what they're asking for really is for their family to be part of this perhaps communal self. And this would lead sort of to maybe a somewhat different understanding than we normally have of Nahla. We normally think of Nahla, we normally think of inheritance as a triumph of the rugged individual ego, right? This is mine, this thing, right? And, and here's my land. This is my place in the world. And it sure. seems like a triumph of the individual. But I wonder, Daniel, if what we're seeing possibly is that Nahla is more important for the communal self than it is for the individual self. Inasmuch as Nachla in the land of Israel is a communal thing, when you have Nachla, you're part of a nation that has Nachla. It's not so significant that you as an individual get to plant your flag on this place and say, here was Daniel Lowenstein. What's important is that your family gets to be part of something so much larger. You know, if you think about land, land itself is so much larger. Land outlasts us. Land makes the ego seem silly. It makes the individual seem laughable. You're going to die and you're going to get buried in the land. The land will outlast you. You can't even hold it. It's bigger than you. It holds you. And so land is the thing that laughs at our individual selves. And when we think we're owning it and claiming it for ourselves as an individual, we're really becoming part of something so much larger than us. The land in terms of the physical land that we're owning, but also land is a synonym for nation, right? We're part of 
the land, part of our people, part of... Uh, and also part of our, our families too, right? And maybe that's why the daughters of Tzlachad place so much of an emphasis, not on wanting a piece of land, but rather on wanting to make sure that the name of their father isn't diminished. Right. Look look at that language. Why should the name of our father be diminished from among his larger family? Even look at that language, right? It's not just so much, why doesn't our father's name live on in perpetuity as an individual? Is that how come he can't be a part of something larger in perpetuity, right. part of the family that has its stake as part of the nation? And, it, and maybe this is a celebration of the individual lasting through its connection with community in both cases, in Pesach and in here. So those are fascinating. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is that the reason possibly for God's ringing endorsement of the requests, both to be able to participate in the Korban Pesach and to be able to participate in an inheritance of land is because of their special significance as um, signifiers of participation in nationhood. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a willingness of the personal ego to lay itself down and say, I am only meaningful if I'm part of something larger. And it's really interesting that you bring that up, that notion of God's ringing endorsement, that these would be the things that God would endorse. And maybe it says something about divine values. It seems to me that you know, maybe I mentioned to you this world before. I said that, you know, our ego boundaries are here in this world. Yeah, what did you what mean I by meant that? by that cryptic comment was the following. It feels to me, now I can't tell you because nobody's been there and back, right? But one of the great mysteries is what Except the Except for Bilbo Baggins. Is. That's right. Wasn't that the name of his book, There and mm-hmm. Back? There and Back Again, Bilbo for you Lord of the Rings fans. Um, but nobody's really been there and back, right? Nobody has been to the next world and come back. So we really don't know what it's like. But if I had to guess what the next world is really like, how it's different than this world, I would suppose that it's a world where oneness predominates. This world is a one where separateness predominates. That world is a world where oneness predominates. And let me explain what I mean by that. This world is a world where we kind of do things and build things. And in that kind of world, things need to be tidy and they need to be ordered and they need to be separate and distinct from each other. And one of the deepest aspects of that order is the existence of our individual selves felt as individual selves. The notion that you are just you, Daniel Lowenstein, and you're circumscribed in time and space and you only exist where you exist and you only exist when you exist. And this right. I wouldn't, fragment. I wouldn't be able to know who I was if I couldn't tell myself apart from you. Yeah. And so it, uh, your whole identity is built upon this fragmentation, the sense that you are cut off and fragmented and fundamentally alone. God actually looks at the very first humankind in this world, and Nebuch tragically says, Lo tov levado. It's not good to be so alone. But that was the very first person with an individual set of boundaries. And somehow it seems to me that that's not the way things really are. That's a construction for this world, an artificial world. There's another world that pre-exists this world. It's God's domain. And God's domain, there's another rule. And the rule is the rule of God, Hashem Echad. God is one. In that world, oneness predominates rather than separation predominating. Fascinating. So I think if I'm understanding where you're going with this, the reason God was so happy to facilitate these requests is because they were actually moving in the direction away from individuality and towards a a greater sense of oneness with, with other yeah, denial of ego, which is that, you know, you got to be a separate self in this world to get things done, but it does have its drawbacks. And when the human being can lay down their individuality and stand for something larger than himself, 
that is partaking a little bit of the deliciousness of God's own world, God's own values. And therefore, God is all too happy to say, hey, you want to be part of the nation that's so important to you, you feel so terrible you missed it? Absolutely. Let's make a way for you that to happen. Hey, you feel bad that you don't have the land, but not because it's a triumph of your individual selves, but it's because your father, you want him to be part of something larger forever. That's amazing. Let's find a way for that to happen. That's such a great idea. And when people can collaborate with God to do that, God is like, okay, let's let's do this. We'll promulgate laws forever in order to be able to do this. It's a triumph of God's values, which we don't really see in this world. We And it's so fascinating, it feels to me. Like, Daniel, if I asked you, like, at the end of the day, you know, what do you want to achieve in this life? And and when we think about our goals, we so often them think about them in terms of what we can individually accomplish. But then the goals become so much larger when we think about what we can contribute to other people's lives. And let me ask you this question, Daniel. At the end of the day, imagine you could have two kinds of achievements at the end of your life. One achievement where Daniel Lowenstein would be remembered forever. Forever. Everyone forever would know about Daniel Lowenstein. But Daniel Lowenstein would not have done anything for anyone else, right? He would be billionaire Daniel Lowenstein, who made it to the top of Fortune 500 and built his tall skyscrapers and became president of the United States. But he never actually did anything with that, right? All he did was he he lived for himself and you would be remembered forever because of that. Or Daniel, another possibility, a possibility that you became deeply involved in making life better for the world, making the world a better place to live. And you managed to achieve that and you achieve deep and lasting significance in that. And there are thousands and thousands of people who are better off because of you, but no one knows your name. And at the end of this, no one remembers of you, but that's your legacy, that you were able to become part of this. Which of those two would you rather have after 120 years? I think that's a very important question. And intuitively, I would hope that we all would prefer the latter. Although living in an ego-based world, it's hard to say that, right? right? Because it's no, I do want to be remembered, darn it, right? Because that's what it means to live with an ego. That's what it means to live in a separate world. So it's so hard to get yourself there, really. But if God says, if that's what you're doing, if you want to come there in this world, I'm totally on your side. Let's make it happen. All right, Foreman, that's a really, really fascinating theory to explain this connection. Uh, I had a different theory. I don't actually think that they're uh, incompatible. So what struck me as fascinating was the the placement of our two stories. Uh, again, mm-hmm. just to remind all our listeners, uh, we had the one story about the Korban Pesach and the people who were unable to participate and requested to be able to participate in some way uh, back in uh, Numbers chapter 9. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, all the way in chapter 27, we have the request of the daughters of Slavcha to be able to inherit their father's land mm-hmm. in the land of Israel. So what I find fascinating about the placement of these stories if you think about it, is they sort of form bookends to the quote-unquote dark times in Bamidbar. Two chapters later uh, from the story of Korban Pesach in chapter 11, you have the story of the Midoninim, the complainers, and from there things go downhill Mm -hmm. with the people who request meats, and then there's the plague, and then the spies, and Korach, and... uh, Disaster upon disaster upon disaster. Disaster upon disaster, uh, you know, sort of wrapping up with the daughters of, of Moab and Midian and the plague that is stopped by Pinchas. And then just about right after that happens in, in chapter 27, we have this lovely story of people requesting land. Mm-hmm. So what you're suggesting is, is that there's a kind of sandwich 
these terrible things in the middle, but there are these two bookends, these bright stories, and the bright stories both have these common themes, this Pesach Sheni story and this Benot Slavchad story of these two people venturing a request tentatively to God, a request that's granted that gives them what it is that they're seeking. Right. And what struck me about these stories, which we called attention to, is that word nigara or yigara. Why should we be diminished or in a certain sense, why should we be left mm-hmm. out? And what I think is fascinating, and let me know what you think about this theory, is the sort of contrast in terms of the way the people who were impure and the daughters of Slavchad seem to be relating to God's vision of you know what, what's good versus everyone else in the middle. What I mean to say is the the people who are impure, they seem to be saying, this Korban Pesach thing, it's really cool. We love the idea of celebrating our redemption, and we wish we were a part of it. Mm -hmm. And Benoit Slavchad similarly seemed to be saying, we value the land of Israel, and we want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. The requests seem to be coming from a really good place. Like you were saying before, they're sort of legitimate requests. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the Book of Numbers might be telling us that uh, whatever sort of slip and fall the nation of Israel had in the desert, where they started relating to God in this very petty way, asking him for different requests they had, testing him here and testing him there. Originally, they were better than that. Originally, when there were opportunities to be close with him and to fulfill his commandments, then if you were left out of that, you wanted to be part of it. And then this thing happened in the middle But finally, they got back to where they were supposed to be. They got back to that good place where if they were left out of something, then they wanted to be a part of it for the right reasons. And they were asking because we don't want to lose a chance to settle in the land of Israel, right? We want to be a part of your nation fully. We want to execute your vision in the right way. And maybe what it's showing is, number one, this this contrast of making requests of God for selfish reasons versus for selfless reasons. And number two, sort of as the story arc, saying the nation of Israel was doing okay, and then they started going through the wilderness and disaster struck. And then finally, at the end of that 40-year period, when they're about to go into the land of Israel, they finally made it back again. There and back again, one more time. Going one more time. But it's an interesting theory. So what you're suggesting is take the ideas which we were talking about before and give them historical context by seeing them as bookends for some other requests that are darker. And if you think about those darker requests, you're right to point out that in those disaster stories, they really all have to do with, with requests, or most of them do. The mita onanim are people who requesting without even knowing what they're requesting. If you look at that language, hitavuta'ava, right? <laughs> Which right. is weird. They had this desire. Desire for what? It doesn't even say. They desired something that was nameless, that they couldn't even put their finger on. And then there's all these other questions after that. We want meat. We don't like the manna. We want regular bread. We want spies. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to break off from the community. And and you're right, Daniel, that so many of those requests, the opposite of them are really in Benot Slavchad and in Karben Pesach, because what's Karben Pesach? We don't want to go back to Egypt. We celebrate our redemption from Egypt, and we celebrate that, and we celebrate the God who took us out. We're going forward, and we're not going backward. And we're willing to take possession of the land. People who died in the desert died because they they wanted ultimately to go back to Egypt. No, we're willing to go forward. We want to go forward. We celebrate the ability to take possession of the land. And if you think about that hitavuta'ava, that nameless desire, 
desire. I wonder if that also circles back to that ego point. It always struck me as strange, Daniel, that the beginning of the Midonanim, the beginning of the disaster, right after Pesach Sheni, that language of hitavuta ava, the people had this desire. And with there's no direct object there. It's not clear what the desire was. And it always struck me as a nameless desire. It was desire for the sake of desire. And I think if you think deeply, Daniel, about what a nameless desire means, desire for the sake of desire, where you just say, no, I won't. I want something and I don't know what I want, but darn it, I'm mad. That that is basically the corruption of the ego par excellence. That's me saying, no, there's a me here. I don't even know what the me wants. It's not about the car that I want. It's not about the money that I want. It's just about the assertion that there's a me and I want it to be recognized. That's right. There's a me, darn it, and you're not recognizing me. And then trying to pin it on something that I need this, I need that. I'm a needer. Right. And and that is the beginning of the end. And then everything else that happens is just an expression of one or the other is of the no, take care of me, take care of me, take care of me. I want to be recognized. And you don't feel accepted for your you. And, it, and so if you could just let go of that and just, it's not always about you. If you can understand that and, and get into a little bit of ego transcendence, getting beyond yourself, then you can actually start living a happy life. Then you can actually be wonderful. And then God says, yeah, let, let's do that. And these two stories are the bookends to that. And maybe it really is there and back again. You know, the, the last tragic good thing that happened was that moment of ego transcendence. And the people said, let's celebrate this offering. Let's find a way to celebrate this offering. And at the end of this whole thing, as they prepare to go into the land of Israel after a terrible string of failure, there's this happy note, this hopeful note with the daughters of Tzlafchad that come and say, yes, we look forward to taking possession of the land. It's not even for us. It's not even about what we can have. It's not even about our needs. It's about our father. And it's about our father being part of something larger and about our house being part of something larger. We want to be part of something larger. So Rai Foreman, I think what we came up with was really one theory that uh, Korban Pesach and inheriting the land are both ways of signaling that you are letting go of your own individualism and your own ego and participating in something larger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And possibly the reason that God would be so eager to accede to those requests would be because God himself views the world as being better when people are larger than themselves and part of something greater, when everything Mm -hmm. is unified, so to speak, which is difficult for people because people tend to want to be individuals and assert their individualism. And part of the challenge of, of living is to find a way to move beyond that. Yeah, and to find that balance, to realize that I am an individual for the time being. You know, it's funny, I'll, I'll just end off with this note. In Yiskar, we we pray that our loved ones are part of Tzor HaChaim, the bundle of life, the bond of life. Think of like how unindividual that is, right? But to be part of something larger, this great celebration of life in the next world, where we think the next world is death, but that life somehow is there, and you could just be part of it. And in this world, we don't experience our lives quite that way. We're, we're much more separate, but to be able to reach beyond our separateness gives us a taste of that world to come in some kind of way. Um, and and maybe these these people were reaching out towards that as they were reaching towards Israel and leaving away Mitzrayim. By the way, it's interesting, even the word Mitzrayim, think about what the word really means. Think about the middle of that word, tsar, narrow, bordered, cut off. 
as opposed to reach beyond that that sense of narrowness. Um, so, Dana, let's leave it here. I really appreciate those thoughts. Fascinating. I love doing these podcasts because, you know, I'd seen these connections before, but never really synthesized them in any satisfying way. So I really appreciate the chance to do that in real time with you here. Me too. Thank you so much. And Roy Foreman, Mazel Tov on the wedding tonight. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Daniel, look forward to dancing with you there and with virtually with all you people out there in Aleph Beta land. So this is Rabbi David Foreman for Daniel Lowenstein saying goodbye, but not before you subscribe to this podcast and send us those five-star ratings, guys. Come on, just just do it. Uh, we're really, really happy to have you aboard. Look forward to seeing you next week. Have a good week. Shabbat shalom. Bye-bye.